What does Andy Stanley's ministry show us about ourselves and the American church? We're going to take a tough look in the church mirror today. Also, we've got a lot of national news to cover because I didn't cover any last week. Um, from the debates to Disney, from Trump pulling ahead of Biden to RFK's coming announcement. And locally, we'll talk about a German family in Tennessee facing deportation after living here for nearly a decade. And of course, we'll talk about Kevin McCarthy being removed as the Speaker of the House. I'm Blake Watson, and this is We the Free. As a Christian, there's nothing wrong. In fact, there is everything good about swearing allegiance to the American flag. Now, why is that? Because of the virtues for which the flag flies. It speaks to our providential founding and has been for nearly 200 years a symbol of freedom to those who seek it. Now, you can fly the American flag with pride from your front porch or out in the front yard. You can even hang one on a wall in the house, the garage, the office, or wherever you wish. I recommend that you get a flag that will last and withstand the weather throughout the seasonal changes of the year. So check out the supplies at Allegiance Flags. Check the link in the show notes or head over to wethefreeshow.com for more. Military and first responders get 10% off all orders. What does it mean to be conservational? It explains what it means to carefully preserve and protect something. And these days, you normally hear it in the context of the environment or energy, like you know the conservation of our national parks or the conservation of electricity. The government and activist groups demand and implore that we do everything we can to preserve and protect these things, but they would, they would never tell us to be conservative in any other way, only when it benefits them. Now, uh, secularly, to be conservative has come to mean that you're fiscally conservative, you know, trying to safeguard the American economy, for example. And there are other aspects where conservatives are fighting in the political arena, like the attempts to conserve human life, conserve the nuclear family, conserve our national sovereignty, etc. But what about the conservation of the church? Is anyone doing that? Who is trying to protect the bride of Christ? And who's supposed to? Well, this past week, North Point Community Church in Atlanta with lead pastor Andy Stanley hosted and participated in a conference entitled Unconditional, which features several quote-unquote experts and speakers for the purpose of, in their own words, helping parents of LGBTQ plus children and for ministry leaders looking to discover ways to support parents and LGBTQ plus children in their churches. They also say, you will be equipped, refreshed, and inspired as you hear from leading communicators on topics that speak to your heart, soul, and mind. We deeply desire this time will bring about healing and restoration. Now, this next part is important. Pay really close attention to what they say. No matter what theological stance you hold, we invite you to listen, reflect, and learn as we approach this topic from the quieter middle space. Now, what is this quieter middle space, and, and what does that even mean? Well, I suppose that it means that on, on one side, you have a complete affirmation of LGBTQ+, with, at the same time, a rejection of God and Christianity, and on the other side, you have a complete attachment to God with a complete rejection of LGBTQ+, leaving this middle space void of any sort of rejection or exclusion. It's where LGBTQ+, and, and Christianity somehow merge together. Now, this is where Andy Stanley and this conference exists, in the quieter middle space, where they attempt to affirm both. Now, the conference is simply a symbol of Andy's theology 
in general and the church network he leads and the progressive church as a whole. This conference caused quite a bit of controversy a week before it was actually held because people began to learn what it was about and that it featured speakers who were not only affirming of LGBTQ plus individuals, but two of the speakers were men who were in gay marriages and professed to be followers of Jesus Christ. Now, today, we're not going to do a full discourse on LGBTQ plus and Christianity. But listen, next week, we will. I will speak more about this conference, the speakers, what the Bible actually says, a, a first-hand account of the conference, because you can't find any video or audio from the event, and I'll answer the question, can you be a gay Christian? Can you be LGBTQ plus and Christian? So be sure to tune in for that next week, because it's becoming a critical question for the church. However, I must say a couple things about the conference, or the reaction to the conference, in order to make some crucial points. The controversy began with Al Mohler Jr., who is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Boyce College. He's an author, a pastor, a speaker, etc., who wrote an opinion piece for World Magazine called The Train is Leaving the Station, referring to Andy Stanley's departure from biblical Christianity. And that really is the focus of our conversation today, the departure from biblical Christianity and the inevitable consequences. In the article, Moeller responds to some of the claims and positions about the conference, but then he says this about Stanley. Andy Stanley, one of the most influential pastors in the United States, has been moving in this direction for years, often by suggestion and assertion, but clouded by confusion and the deliberate avoidance of clarity. Back in 2018, he called for the church to be, quote, unhitched from the Old Testament, arguing that the Old Testament should not be understood as the, quote, go-to source regarding any behavior in the church. But, in truth, there goes the entire Old Testament. A few years before that, in a 2012 message, Stanley seemed to argue that adultery is a sin, but told of two men in a relationship with no suggestion that the same-sex coupling was forbidden by Scripture. When the message became controversial, Stanley did not clarify the situation at all. More recently, in another, Stanley, uh, in another message, Stanley dismissed biblical texts against homosexual behavior as, quote, clobber verses, and said, quote, if your theology gets in the way of ministry, like if there's somebody you can't minister to because of your theology, you have the wrong theology. This is not a misunderstanding. This is a, look at this word, trajectory that points to the unconditional conference and two speakers married to other men on the platform. This is a clear and tragic departure from biblical Christianity, and I'm saying the train has left the station, in other words. So, Moeller writes this piece not only alluding to this affirmation and the, the event affirming LGBTQ plus so-called Christians, but also alluding to Stanley's abandonment of the Old Testament, of which he once said, I'm convinced that we make a better case for Jesus if we leave the Old Testament or the Old Covenant out of the argument. So, when talking about supposed people who abandon Christianity because, because of the Old Testament, Stanley said this, It's time that we face the facts and unhitch our faith and our practice from some of these Old Testament values that we can appreciate in their original context but we don't really have any business dragging them in to a modern context. He also said, we don't worship the Bible, we worship Jesus. His argument is that Jesus you know, ended the old covenant once and for all, and that, uh, or that Jesus fulfilled the old covenant. Therefore, we don't even need the Old Testament, right? So this was five years ago. The conference was last week on Thursday and Friday. 
And then on Sunday, so October 1st, Stanley responded to Mueller's article in his sermon. Now, I'm, I'm quoting you some of what he said because it's very important to what we're studying today. Listen very carefully to Stanley's response and his positions, and you can say also the positions of North Point and their churches. Stanley says, Mueller is actually accusing me of departing from his version of biblical Christianity. So I want to go on record and say, I have never subscribed to his version of biblical Christianity to begin with, so I'm not leaving anything. And if he were here, he would say, well, well, Andy, I've never subscribed to your version of biblical Christianity. And that's okay. We can agree to disagree. But this is so extraordinarily misleading. In my opinion, just my opinion, his version of biblical Christianity is the problem. His version, this version of biblical Christianity, is why people are leaving Christianity unnecessarily. It's the version that causes people to resist the Christian faith because they can't find Jesus in the midst of all the other stuff and all the other theology and all the other complexity that gets blobbed onto the message. Bottom line, that version of Christianity draws lines. And Jesus drew circles. He drew circles so large and included so many people in his circle that it consistently made religious leaders nervous. So he's saying a couple things here. First, that Mueller and, and anybody that agrees with Mueller, in, including myself, are wrong and that he is right. And secondly, that Jesus was this loving character who exhibited an uncomfortable inclusivity for religious leaders in his day. He says, Jesus drew circles as if to say, Jesus never drew lines. Now later in that same message, Stanley validated the conference as he clarified the position of his church, saying, gay Christians choose a same-sex marriage not because they're convinced it's biblical. They read the same Bible we do. They chose to marry for the same reason many of us do, love, companionship, and family. Now, all that stuff, I'm going to dismantle that, that claim next week. But he also says this, in the end, as was the case for all of us, and this is the important thing I want you to hear me say, it's their decision. Our decision is to decide how we respond to their decision. And we decided 28 years ago. We draw circles. We don't draw lines. We draw big circles. If someone desires to follow Jesus, regardless of their starting point, regardless of their past, regardless of their current circumstances, our message is, come and see and come and sit with me. And this is not new. This is who we are. It's who we've always been. And this is why I love our church. And this is why I'm so extraordinarily proud of you. We aren't condoning sin. We are restoring relationships. And we are literally saving lives. While these excerpts from his message from this past Sunday will serve some of our arguments for next week's show, I want you to see Andy's intention of ministry, drawing big circles. Another way of, of describing that is the word inclusivity. So using his understanding of the Bible, the gospel, and, and Jesus himself, Stanley's approach to ministry for some time has been creating a space that is welcoming to as many people as possible. It seeks to be inoffensive and non-confrontational and stripped of any call to transformation or change or repentance. You're seeing that fulfilled in these two things, like the Unconditional Conference in 2023, the departure from the Old Testament in 2018. But further back um, than that, you, you have Stanley's book, Deep and Wide. This was released in 2012, and it's simply summarized as a, a how-to guide in creating churches that non-Christians non-Christians, would be interested in attending. The book begins by basically telling the story of how North Point Community Church came to be. His father's church, First Baptist Atlanta, pastored by the one and only Charles Stanley, 
they could barely handle the amount of people that were trying to come to that church. So Andy created essentially like a sister church. Now, what follows in the consecutive chapters is an explanation of what they did to build a successful church. And tons of churches, I don't know if I can say thousands, but at least hundreds and hundreds of churches followed their example. They're all around us. Now, here's a short list of quotes from this book that was written over a decade ago, which again has served as a how-to guide for countless churches in America. He says, Since people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, people who are nothing like Jesus should like us as well. Now, that is just the opposite of what Jesus said would happen to us. He said that the world would hate us because it hated him first. But not according to Andy. He also said, We were the only church designed from the ground up to capture the imaginations of unchurched people. He said, We genuinely want to be a network of churches that unchurched people find irresistible. He said, We are unapologetically attractional. In our search for common ground with unchurched people, we've discovered that, like us, they are consumers, so we leverage their consumer instincts. He also said when you read the Gospels, it's hard to overlook the fact that Jesus attracted large crowds everywhere he went. He, meaning Jesus, was constantly playing to the consumer instincts of his crowds. Let's face it, it wasn't the content of his messages that appealed to the masses. Most of the time, they didn't even understand what he was talking about. Heck, we're not even sure what he was talking about. People flocked to Jesus because he fed them and healed them and comforted them and promised them things. The book also says, I grew up around people who believed the church was for saved people who acted like saved people. I'm all too familiar with that church brand. The catch was, they were the ones who decided what acting like a saved person meant. And then one more quote says, Churches designed for saved people are full of hypocrites. So you can clearly see Andy's prescription for being a successful church. Draw a big, giant circle. Don't draw any lines. Be inclusive. Be attractive. Do church for the person that isn't even a Christian so that Jesus and the church will be irresistibly attractive, etc., etc. Now, I have to make one crucial point before we move on to diagnosing the much bigger issue here. But in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is saying goodbye to the church in Ephesus, which he loved, when he says this. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The Greek word for church here is ekklesia, which when you break down the word, it's the, the words ek, which it means out from and to, and the word kaleo, which means to call. So altogether, when you put those two things together, it literally means the called out ones. Contextually, meaning the people who are called out from the world and worldliness and unto God. So Paul says that these are the people Christ shed his blood for. This tells us two things. First, that the church, the church, is the group of people who have forsaken the world to follow Jesus, and that the church is exclusive to those people. Ecclesia is exclusive in itself, and the blood of Christ only covers that group. This same idea is expressed in Ephesians chapter 5, when, once again, the Apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that, that not only speaks to the subject more broadly, but, and, and that we'll, just, we'll talk about next week, but it demonstrates who the church is and who Christ died for, since this is that same Greek word, ecclesia. Now, to this point, I'm only going to speak broadly 
about the Old and New Testaments to point out that the countless laws of God's people in the Old Testament served, in part, the purpose of separating them from the rest of the world. It was intended to make them as holy a nation as they possibly could be, distinct from everybody else. The Israelites were the special chosen group of people who were given exclusive access to God, providence by God, and protection from God, which nobody could enjoy. Nobody else could enjoy unless they converted to Judaism fully. And then in the New Testament and at the institution of the New Covenant, which opened the door for Gentiles to become children of God, the New Testament is littered with countless distinctions of those who were repentant believers and those who were carnal unbelievers, unrepentant people who were either attacking the church or attempting to infiltrate the church or wanted nothing to do with the church. In other words, the second part of the Bible never shows one example of non-believers with believers. In fact, here's how the birth of the Christian church was described in Acts chapter 2. Towards the end of the chapter, Luke tells us, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now what you need to notice first is that these people who constituted the first Christian church had all things in common. They shared the same beliefs and they were spending much time together. And notice that they were growing day by day. So the question is here, what in the world <laughs> launched this movement, this gathering of Christians, which continues to this day? Well, Peter has just finished giving what is the first Christian sermon, in which he rebukes the audience, rebukes them for their rejection of Christ. And when they ask after, after being convicted for their sin, Peter tells them in verse 38, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later he tells them, be saved from this perverse generation. And after this harsh rebuke and this call to repentance, thousands of people, 3,000 it says, began following Jesus that day. And there was no sound system, there was no light show, there was no music or fog or watering down of the gospel, there was no projectors or LED screens, no concert, no avoidance of personal offense, and no display of inclusivity. Now, I don't know if it was the capitalistic nature of Americans or uh, viewing the, su the success of evangelists like Billy Graham or even outside of Christendom, you know, being inspired by the music industry or if it was just simple outright greed. But for some reason, at some point in our nation here in America, we adopted this same approach to church that Andy Stanley did. It may be in large part because, because of Stanley. But what did it cost? What did it cost? Our Sunday and, and Wednesday gatherings became and have become completely geared towards the non-Christian. And, and it's produced a consumeristic, secularly inspired, evangelistic event every week. The music... Uh, changed for, for much the same reason. Like classic theologically rich hymns and hymnals were replaced by theologically shallow and repetitive and sometimes nonsensical contemporary music, mainly focused on the rhythmic instrumentation and the booming bass and drums. All of these bells and whistles simply served and still serve as an allurement to those external to the church. And, and not to suggest that this was the, the main mission of every single church, but many churches focused entirely on the week-to-week -week response. How many got saved? 
How many got baptized? How many were in attendance? How many came back the following week? Church staffs amassed and were treated like corporate office workers. Job requirements had no concern for spiritual matters. Only skill and experience. We'll talk about that more next week. In other words, the American church became and, and now is basically like a big business, a, a Fortune 500 company. And just like the, the other Fortune 500 companies, we're progressively embracing wokeness and liberalism so that we can fit in and be liked by everyone else. That's what Andy Stanley has been doing for decades, and that's what the American church has been doing for decades as well. And what does it cost us? What does it cost us to be a lukewarm church sitting on the fence, attempting to have a foot in both the secular world and the spiritual world? What does it cost us to be progressive and contemporary? Because something had to be sacrificed to adapt to this sort of ministry, which really isn't ministry at all. And unfortunately, the this, this thing that we sacrificed in order to do this was discipleship. The American church stopped discipling its members. We stopped training people in righteousness. We stopped holding our brothers and sisters accountable. We stopped helping our congregation towards repentance. And all of this so that every service and every gathering and everything we do could simply be evangelistic. Now, while evangelism is necessary and should absolutely be preached, it was never intended to happen within the confines of the, the ecclesia gathering. Just check your Bibles. It never shows that one single time. In fact, the example I gave you earlier was Peter giving the first Christian sermon or message, which was evangelistic, and then the church was born. And from that point forward, those individuals didn't need to be reintroduced to Jesus. They had to be taught how to be like Jesus. That's what all of your New Testament books and, and the epistles are. So here, after decades of, of no discipleship, what is the consequence? What is the consequence? We have church members and church pastors that are buried under a mountain of secret guilt from pornographic indulgence. We have Christians who can't put down their coping mechanisms. Alcohol, drugs, shopping, leisure. We have Christians that look and act and sound and think and speak exactly like non-Christians. And we are progressively seeing the adoption of liberalism and progressivism, much like Andy Stanley and his embrace of sinful identities and heresies like the abandonment of God's Word. My point is, the goal of contemporaryism and modernism has beget this anemic church who barely knows the Word of God, who barely practices repentance, and who barely conserves the most important institution on the face of the planet. The church, the bride of Christ. Now, this also has a net negative effect. Evangelism exposes people to Christ, and then discipleship makes them like Christ. When they become like Christ, they individually become evangelistic wherever they find themselves. But when discipleship is removed from the equation, when it's taken out of the picture, no one becomes like Christ, and no one is actually evangelizing. And that results in two deaths. Two deaths. Two things die. The death of the American church and the death of the American society. Because who can evangelize our culture when they haven't been trained? No one is being the salt of the earth and, and the light of the world because no one is teaching them how. Now, Andy says that I just have a different version 
of biblical Christianity and that we can just, quote, agree to disagree. But that could not be further from the truth. He would like to believe these things to be gray areas or non-issues. Well, then why does Paul say that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God? Why does Jesus and Peter and Paul and John the Baptist and the rest of the disciples demonstrate for us that repentance was the evidence for your authentic belief in Christ, that you had given your whole self over to the Lordship of Christ? The truth is that this is abominable, and we must conserve the church, the bride of Christ, that the family and marriage and all institutions of the Lord, which are under great assault in our land. And when we do, when we return to true discipleship, when we do church for the believers, and when we stop trying to be politically correct and progressive and attractive and contemporary, the church will resurrect in America, and likely so will our culture. Speaking of, let's get to the national news feed. Since I spent last week's entire episode talking about the humanitarian crisis at the southern border, which I really strongly recommend you go listen to, I've got a lot of news to cover today, so let's get going. I'm going to talk about uh, Kevin McCarthy's removal from the speakership later on in the local segment, so please stay tuned for that. But first up today, the second GOP debate was last week on Wednesday night, and this second debate was pretty much the same as the first one a month ago, with a few exceptions. Asa Hutchinson did not have enough support to return to the second debate. Nikki Haley was overly combative and I think may be the only one who actually hurt herself from the debate. And Chris Christie told one of the cringiest jokes I've heard in a long time, and that's that's a lot. That's saying a lot coming from me because I really enjoy a good dad joke. And Donald Trump should be here to answer for that, but he's not. And I want to look at that camera right now and tell you, Donald, I know you're watching. You can't help yourself. I know you're watching, okay? And you're not here tonight. Not because of polls and not because of your indictments. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on this stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. Do you get it? Like, his name is Donald and, and he's been ducking the debates? Yeah, well, it went over about as well as you would suspect with everybody. But, of course... Trump did not show up to the second debate because, again, tactically speaking, and I've talked about this before, it would be a waste of time and a potentially harmful misstep for him to participate in the debates. Yes, he is polling so far ahead of everyone and doesn't have to, but entering a debate and being exposed to questioning and ridicule from people who have served with him or under him, uh, these things could potentially hurt his chances. So, of course, He's not going to participate. Now, unlike Trump and, and many of my uh, compatriots who think they should stop the debates, I think they should continue trimming these candidates down and keep debating. I'm not sure of the likelihood that Trump somehow legally loses his chance at a second nomination, but just in case, in the event that something like that does happen, we need to know truly what our other options are. And other than, you know, looking at past records, the debates are our only opportunity at that. So, however, <laughs> if they continue to be like this, I don't think anybody wants to see another debate. It was an unruly debate with the candidates often talking over each other. Let's have a policy debate. What's going on? The moderators repeatedly had to plead for the candidates to follow the rules. We cannot talk over each other. We must respect each other's time. Just for the record, that's what God hears at any given moment, all that talking. But just to reiterate, people don't want to tune in for that. That's not what they came for. They also don't want to watch the, the candidates uh, give these short, truncated answers to complicated questions. But 
Other than that, the outcome was basically the same this time as the first debate. DeSantis won the night, and everybody else was just more of who they showed themselves to be in the first round. Six weeks ago, I reported Disney um, had financial troubles as, as much of their uh, massive empire was struggling to meet uh, earnings expectations and, and revenue increases, and all of this was attributable to their integration of wokeness into basically every project. Uh, movies, shows, theme parks, products, etc. All the stuff they produce. At that point, after the second quarter had ended, Disney had lost millions of dollars and millions of customers and, and subscribers, which they, for some reason, blamed on excessive streaming content. Well, we knew the real reason. And now, after the third financial quarter has elapsed, Disney's revenue is down again. Reuters is reporting, Walt Disney CEO Bob Iger told investors the company will, quote, quiet the noise in a culture war that has pitted social conservatives against the global media and entertainment conglomerate, according to an analyst note on Wednesday. Iger's brief statement included an analyst report from Needham media analyst Laura Martin, uh, was part of an investor's presentation on Tuesday at Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando, Florida. Disney is struggling to make its streaming business profitable, improve the quality of its films, position its flagship sports brand, ESPN, uh, to stream directly to customers and potentially shed its television networks. The entertainment company was thrust at the center of the nation's culture wars in 2022 when it publicly criticized Florida legislation restricting classroom discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity. Governor Ron DeSantis responded by campaigning against woke Disney and working with the state legislature to strip it of self-governing authority over the parks. Iger's remarks about its content appear to mirror those he made at the company's annual shareholder meeting in April. At that time, Iger was responding to an investor who said the company was becoming too concerned with social issues. This is what he said. Our primary mission needs to be to entertain and to have a positive impact on the world. Iger said at the time, I'm very serious about that. It should not be agenda driven. In other words, we were right and what we are doing is working. Now, this realization is finally starting to make its way through the media that conservatives have the power of the economic purse because we comprise the majority of the populace. Just watch the faces of these CNB CNBC anchors as they describe the situation. Time now for the executive edge. Disney CEO Bob Iger is vowing to quiet the noise around the culture war that has pitted the company against political leaders. That's according to a presentation by Iger to analysts that was reported by Needham. The company has been embroiled in a battle with Florida and its governor, Ron DeSantis, over the state's rules on schools teaching sexual orientation and gender. That battle has grown into a fight over Disney's development of property around its Florida theme park. Um, and it's been something that I don't think either side has fared very well with. Uh, I think he's a Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, we were talking about that. It's a lose-lose, it, it looks like. Because, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that go into whether a candidate gains traction. And it, I mean, obviously, that it's been well reported that uh, Governor DeSantis has fallen in a lot of the polls and his uh, Disney stock is down too. I'm and and Disney stock for, for a lot of reasons, but this probably doesn't. And that looks to me like kind of a, not a retreat, but certainly, you know, saying like you're it. not going to be out in front. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, you if were. you can quiet things down, if you can get out of that, I don't think any company wants to be embroiled in the middle of it. And in fairness, some of this started, or all of it started before Iger came back. It probably would have been handled differently originally had he been there. Um, but it's been a tricky situation, and both sides have ramped I things up to such Honestly, I don't just tie it to the, the, the part of the stuff of Chapek and, and DeSantis. I tie it to almost some of, just some of the backlash to just how woke Disney is across the board in a lot of different ways. It's probably a fair statement. I mean, it, you look at, that's what I said. It, they, what are they going to have at the theme parks? All their old characters are canceled. And, well, maybe now with the strike being set, they can get some new characters. But um, 
I don't know. No, nobody's perfect. We can't erase everything that's happened in the, in the past. No, and, and look, if you're trying to calm down the noise around a political situation, that's something you can control versus a lot of things you can't. Right. Um, I, I, no more comments on, on that. I don't know. I think they've, you know. They're almost speechless. <laughs> and speaking of being speechless, in recent news, you probably heard about an ABC News poll showing Donald Trump with a nine-point lead over Joe Biden. Did you see that? Now, a lot of conservatives were celebrating over this, and, and that was my initial uh, surprise. I was shocked by it, but as I thought about it a little more, I realized, oh, hang on a second, we're talking about ABC News and, and the Washington Post here. If Trump were actually polling that far ahead of Biden by almost 10 points, there is no way that they would actually report that. So there's two schools of thought here. First, that they're inflating Trump's numbers to push him towards the nomination because they think he can be beaten, or they're flubbing the numbers to ditch Biden. Now, there's a, a man, Dick Morris. He's a former advisor and a campaign manager to Bill Clinton. He had this analysis of the polling he told Newsmax over the past week. After working with him in the Clinton White House, if there is one Democrat I know inside and out, it is my former colleague, George Stephanopoulos. So Stephanopoulos is a former Clinton official as well, and, and now he's one of ABC's main anchors. So Morris goes on to say, the recent ABC Washington Post poll showing Trump nine points ahead of Biden bears all his fingerprints, meaning Stephanopoulos. After years of seeing polls deliberately skewed against Trump to discourage people from backing or donating to him, we now have the spectacle of a poll biased for Trump, likely designed to force Biden out of the race. Stephanopoulos would never have permitted ABC to go with a poll that shows Biden losing by 10 points unless he wanted to send a message to his party, dump Biden. Democrats had hoped that Trump indictments would hobble the GOP frontrunner, but instead they have energized his base, essentially eliminated, eliminated the Republican primary, and delivered the nomination to Trump. These indictments represent one of the greatest political blunders in our nation's history. Next, Morris went on to talk about other factors in the election, the economy, new voters, non-voters, and young voters, surveyed in the Washington Post ABC poll. He breaks down the information saying, the Democrats doubtless bet on a recovering economy to boost Biden's ratings. But the Post ABC poll found only 25%, 25% who rate the economy as excellent or good as opposed to 75% that rate it negatively. And then there are, there are the non-voters. Among those who said they did not vote in 2020, look at this, Trump leads Biden by 63 to 27. This means that Biden won't be saved by a higher voter turnout because the new voters would prefer Trump. Among voters under age 35, Trump leads Biden by 20 points a constituency the Democrat won in 2020 by overwhelming margins. Among non-whites, Biden's lead has dwindled to a mere nine points. So in summary, Morris wraps up his analysis of the polling saying, by releasing the ABC poll, Stephanopoulos is sending a message to his party that they can't run Biden and hope to beat Trump. So who would the Democrats run? There would be a food fight to replace Biden. Kamala Harris will quickly be shunted aside. Her ratings are even worse than Biden's. The progressive left will likely back either California Governor Gavin Newsom, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, or Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. The establishment center of the party will likely embrace Department of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. And black voters will probably choose between New Jersey Senator Cory Booker and former Massachusetts Governor Duval Patrick. It's always possible Michelle Obama jumps in, but the tea leaves aren't pointing that way. And don't count Hillary Clinton out. Now, I don't know if I agree with 
all, all his predictions here. But the data is really, really interesting. A leading Democrat media member is sending a message to his party to dump Biden because he can't beat Trump. And this is based on the data from the actual polling. Trump keeps gaining support as the indictments keep coming in. People are giving a terrible review of Biden's economy. Trump leads him by a massive margin in new voters and young voters, which is stunning to me. And Biden's lead over Trump is dwindling among people of color. Speaking of the election, Robert Kennedy Jr., as you surely know, announced his run for the Democrat ticket for this upcoming election against Joe Biden. But if you've been paying close enough attention, you know that the DNC is basically shunning Kennedy from even being in the arena. Now, RFK Jr. released a commercial over the last few days teasing some big announcement, and everybody is speculating on whether or not he's going to announce that he's going to run as an, as a, an independent candidate. Well, that thought, that question leads to another thought. If Kennedy runs as an independent candidate, who will that hurt more? Trump or Biden? Well, last week, RFK was on Theo Vaughn's podcast. Take a look at some of these clips. But how, do, so what is your path in to really get to the presidential nomination for 2024? Is there a path for you, do you feel like? Well, if President Biden steps out, you know, the decision kind of has to be made by October 15th because oh, they're- that's soon. Yeah, because- You'll know before Halloween. Yeah, the um, October 15th, um, you have to start uh, qualifying in certain states so that you, ha you have to declare whether you're a Democrat or an independent or Republican. Yeah. And you can't, a lot of people think, well, you can run as a Democrat and then if you lose everything, then you can just switch to independent and run on independent, but you can't do that. Because a lot of states have sore loser laws and make it so that you have to choose early and you can't go, you can't come in, you know, once you've chosen Democrat, you can't switch independent. But you've already chosen that you're a Democrat, right? I mean, you've been a lifelong Democrat. Is there a chance that you would run as an independent? Do you look at that ever? Like, and how do you even evaluate that? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, if they really shut down the process, we're, we're right now, you know, we're grappling with the DNC trying to get them to do the right thing. But if they rig the process so that I can't possibly win, which is how it's rigged right now, then I would have to look at other options. I would have to look at running as, you know, maybe outside of the party or something. I don't know exactly what I do. I'm hoping that they'll open up the process and let me run. Um, you know, we polled this week and I, if, if, I, if President Biden steps down, um, I uh, I have a pretty clear path to the nomination. My numbers are better than any other Democrats, including the vice president, Kamala Harris. Um, so, and then uh, if he stays in and they give me a, you know, a fair fight, I think I can beat him. Yeah. Um, All right, so now it's my turn. I think that he's obviously going to run as an independent candidate, but as an independent candidate, he cannot switch to another party, according to his own words here. And I don't think there's even a remote chance that he could win. I mean, one of the last candidates to run as an independent was Ross Perot, who won 19% of the popular vote in 1992. Ralph Nader won 3% in the 2000 election, and many Democrats blame Nader for Al Gore's loss to George W. Bush. Many people believed John B. Anderson helped Reagan win in 1980, gaining 7% of the popular vote, delivering a loss to Democrat incumbent Jimmy Carter, who's quite similar to Biden economically. George Wallace got 14% of the vote, the popular vote, in 1968 when Richard Nixon won. Theodore Roosevelt ran as a third-party candidate in 1912 when he got 27% of the vote against Taft and Woodrow Wilson, who, who won that election. My point is, third-party candidates never, ever win unless you count George Washington. But 
they only ever take votes away. And most of the time, it's from the Democrat Party candidate. So is that what's going to happen this time? I can't be certain, but I'm just thinking logically here. If Kennedy knows this information, all this data that we just talked about, then this move is intentional to hurt one of the leading candidates. So then the question becomes, who, who, who would vote for Kennedy? Like, who would actually support this candidate? I think it's more classical Democrats who, who there's plenty of. I think it's people who consider themselves independent or centrist. I think it's for elitist types who can't stand Trump, but they also can't stand the liberality and wokeness of the new Democrat Party. Um, but based on the polling you heard me cite earlier concerning Biden's plummeting popularity and, and polling and amid Trump's rising popularity in polling, I think this will hurt Biden more than Trump because the large number of people who are loyal to the Democrat Party and who despise Donald Trump yet hate the condition of the country, and I think I'm describing a sizable group of people, those are votes lost from Biden, which ultimately helps Trump. And honestly, I know Kennedy is a liberal, but I would describe him as a classic liberal, which I know is, is merely just a regressive, like primal form of what we now have. But I think for that reason, that he's a classic liberal, Kennedy would even prefer Trump over Biden. But we'll see. We'll actually see in the next 10 days. And no, I, I highly doubt you'll see any sort of unification ticket with Trump and Kennedy. Now let's get to the local news feed. You probably need some roof repairs. If you feel that water dripping every time it rains or those shingles are starting to look bad, the sooner you act, the better. So call my friends over at Turner Exteriors for an estimate on your roof today. If you tell them Blake sent you, they'll give you $500 off your new roof. Now I know the guys and gals over at Turner Exteriors. They do fantastic work. You will love the new life they bring to your home. Evan Millens from The Tennessean is reporting on a German family who was facing deportation from the United States. Now, is it because they're some fascistic Nazis over here to overthrow America? No, it's actually worse. They're a Christian family who fled Germany over their oppressive education laws. Here's what the article reads. A German family that immigrated to East Tennessee to homeschool their children is at risk of deportation from the United States stoking controversy among homeschool advocates and conservatives. In 2006, Uwe Romaika and his wife Hannelore Romaika began homeschooling their children in Germany because of their evangelical Christian faith. Because homeschooling is not permitted for religious reasons, they were fined and their children were made to attend public schools. In order to homeschool their five children, the Ramaikas uh, moved to Tennessee in August 2008 and settled in Morristown between Johnson City and Knoxville. They've had two children born in America, both of whom are American citizens as a result. So they actually have seven total children. So that means, you know, two of them were born here. And the father, Uva, is a piano accompanist at Carson Newman University. Anyways, the article goes on. In January 2010, immigration judge Lawrence O. Berman um, approved the Romica's application for asylum, saying that the family has a well-founded fear of persecution by the German government for homeschooling. According to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, asylum may be granted to people who have been persecuted or fear they will be persecuted on account of race, religion, nationality, and or membership in a particular social group or political opinion. The U.S. Department of Justice appealed the decision. The U.S. Board of Immigration Appeals revoked the family's asylum status in May 2012 and issued a final order for their removal. The Homeschool Legal Defense Association represented the Ramica family at their appeal to the U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. 
A three-judge panel ruled unanimously against the family, writing that they failed to show that Germany's enforcement of its school attendance law amounts to persecution against them. The article also says the Supreme Court denied rehearing the Ramaika's appeal. And then, according to Syracuse University, nearly 2 million people applied for asylum in the United States from 2001 through 2022. 2 million! And just over 600,000 of them were granted asylum in that time period, according to Homeland Security. Then from 2013 to 2012, about 15,000 people from Europe were granted asylum. None of those appear to be from Germany. Asia has had the most people granted asylum in the United States, with nearly 120,000 people from 2013 through 2022. According to HSLDA, the family has been allowed to stay by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security under the order of supervision and indefinite deferred action status. Now, this sounds really similar to the DACA program, which basically means the same thing only for children of illegal immigrants. Um, like, it's, if, if you will keep these standards and requirements, if you're a good law-abiding person, we will let you continue living here, and you can hopefully be on a pathway to citizenship. So, the Romica family is basically in the same position, though it's, it's a little complicated with two American-born children. And then the story takes a bad turn. The Romica family says that they were told during a routine check-in on September 6th that they had four weeks to secure passports to return to Germany. Since then, their story has circulated through local media and has been picked up by a few national outlets. So, it's right at the end of this time, and a petition has been circulating the internet asking for people to show their support for this family to the Biden administration, at least to extend their deferred action so they can continue living here in the United States. The petition is, is looking for 100,000 signatures, and the last I checked, they're about 5,000 signatures away. And, and there's also a number of congressional men and women who are trying to help out as well. This is the sort of immigration most Americans want. We want to provide a haven of liberty for those without it and for a people who demonstrate great values, especially Christian values, and will contribute to the goodness of our society. Regardless of skin color or nationality, I would take a million of these families over the millions of others who are invading our country as we speak. But the disgusting thing is that this good family faces deportation who are here properly and justly, yet thousands are waltzing in to no consequence at all. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes for the petition. Please, if you will, sign it today. Now, one more thing before we go. Surely you know by now that Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, was removed from his position on Tuesday afternoon. The Republicans have a slim majority in the House as it is, so with obviously 100% of the Democrats um, opposing the Republican Speaker, obviously they're going to do that. It didn't take many votes to remove him. Eight Republicans, eight, voted to remove the Speaker. A lot of conservatives are unhappy with this decision, so-called conservatives, but I'm going to tell you why I'm pleased with the decision and why I'm happy that my congressman, Tim Burchett from Tennessee, chose to remove the Republican speaker. We were out the entire month of August, our fiscal year in September 30th. We took two weeks off in September, and then we get crammed up against passing what's called a continued resolution. And all that is is just a, um, a stopgap measure to get us through 30 days or whatever. And then, uh, once again, they told us we're going to pass this one so that we'll never pass another one again. So that's, you know, we've been doing, I've been here five years. We've been doing it for 30 years, have not passed a budget. And then they tell us we're going to pass this budget so we don't have to pass another one again. That's like telling a crackhead, I'm going to give you crack, get you off of crack. 
because we're just drunk with our great-grandchildren's money. It's all we're doing. We're spending our future away. We take in $5 trillion a year. And conservative estimates in the conservative plan had us spending over $7 trillion. And that's what these folks are patting themselves on the back over. And I just can't go down that road. Is it, the, is it fair to say that to characterize your decision to vote against uh, McCarthy and to remove him, it, it was just a, hey, we're, we're seeing business as usual done, and that's just not good enough anymore? That, that is not good enough. The, 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 the left-wing Democrats, they spend all this money on woke programs. Republicans, we spend it on missile defense systems that we don't need and that both parties have stock in, case in point. And, and we vote and, and we, we killed legislation that had savings. We had an agriculture bill, had some pretty drastic cuts in it. It failed on the floor. We had a bill to add 30 billion new dollars, 30 billion to the Pentagon. Now remember this, I mean, those guys are a bunch of war pimps. All they do is push war. They have never passed an audit since they've audited the Pentagon. At one time, they could not account for 60% of their assets. Yet we keep rewarding them with more money, this time $30 billion more billion, and not one peep about it. And if you vote against it, you're considered, um, anti you're not patriotic. I voted against it. I, you know, I, I support the veterans. I support what's going on. But that is ridiculous. We are just going down this path once again of runaway spending. And I asked leadership. I said, there was about 15 of us that were concerned about some of the issues. I said, get us in a room. And they wouldn't do it. They would not do it. They wouldn't talk about it. You know, and, and so here's what happens, Bob. They pass these continued resolutions, and then they push us. And guess what? This last one, 45 days. So it puts us up right up against Thanksgiving holiday. We're trying to get out of town like everybody else. And that's what they do. They do that on purpose. And then they pass what's called an omnibus bill. Now, an omnibus bill is 2,000 pages of Nancy Pelosi. you got to read it so you know what's in it. So what does Congress do? They read down 5, 10, 20, maybe 1,000 pages, I don't know, and they find out what's in it for them, what's in it for their district, which lobbyists are they having degrees out of these bills and um, in your special interest. And then they stop reading, and all the rest, and they vote for it because what they got they needed in their district or they needed or whatever for the lobbyists. And that's why we are $33 trillion. We added a trillion dollars in debt in three months, Bob. That's how serious this is. Leadership is not addressing it. If we don't address it, we're going to wreck this country. Now, they, they got on me and said, well, Virtue, you're going to close the government to close down. Well, I dare say three or four days of government shutdown versus the total collapse. The total collapse of our economic system is what we're up against. You know, you can't, you, you got $100,000 pickup trucks out there that people, you know, that, that I wouldn't step out of the electric chair to ride in. Uh, you, the value of the American dollar is decreasing every day, and we've got to address it. Leadership did not, and I made a stand, and that's where I'm at. Now, if you will, for just a moment, suspend whatever feelings and emotions Fox News has told you to have and consider the convictions of Congressman Burchett and my own thoughts on the matter. I'm gonna first give you my reasons for agreeing with the eight Republicans, and then I'll give you Burchett's. This speaker, Kevin McCarthy, has been the speaker for about eight months. In that amount of time, the only productive thing that has happened and the only thing that has been actually beneficial to our country is the removal of Nancy Pelosi. This is, of course, due to the new yet slim Republican majority. There's only a nine-seat advantage here. And in this chamber of Congress, these individuals are charged with representing their district and their constituents, not themselves, not lobbyists, and not other districts. The people that put them there, that's who they represent. And the people of this country, by and large, are sick and tired of the economic kicking of the can, creating endless amounts of money from nothing, devaluing our money, driving up inflation, tanking the economy so that uh, Joe can have 
favors over here and Sally can have her palms greased over there. We're also tired of the incredible lack of justice. We're tired of the treason and bribery and high crimes and other misdemeanors by the sitting president. And what has the now former speaker done in eight months to address any of these things? Practically nothing. Now, Burchett listed his reasons. They took six weeks off, accomplishing nothing. This caused them to rush into a debate, a truncated debate, over budgets and cuts and balancing, which led to nothing but a CR bill. They were told, we're going to pass the massive bill anyways, which is just going to create more debt. It's not going to balance the budget. It's not going to address the fiscal issues. But we promise, we promise, this is the last time, I swear. Burchett said, quote, we're drunk with our great-grandchildren's money. He said, the federal government spends $7 trillion a year, but only earns $5 trillion. You don't have to be an economic genius to see what that leads to. In this round of budgetary debates, the other 200 Republicans wanted to give the Pentagon a raise of $30 billion, which Burchett said has never passed an audit. When they expressed their dissent and, and a desire to meet with McCarthy, he refused. He wouldn't do anything to prevent these endless omnibus bills where they cram a thousand things into a bill that's disguised as something like the in Inflation Reduction Act. But it's so bloated with garbage and favors, it actually becomes the, the Inflation Creation Act. He mentioned that we add a trillion dollars. We added a trillion dollars in debt in three months, just in a three-month period under McCarthy and that we're up against the total collapse of our economy, which, for the record, has over $33 trillion. $33 trillion in national debt. And nowadays, when we say something like that, it's, it's like it doesn't even matter. But we're saying trillion with a T. So regardless of what other so-called conservatives are saying about Burchett and the seven other Republicans, it takes a lot of guts to be one of eight Republicans out of 221 Republicans to take a stand. And I'm glad they did because we have to take drastic measures to save this financial sinking ship. And not to mention the two legitimate names uh, mentioned as, as candidates to fill the seat so far, Steve, uh, Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan. I, I will take those two all day over McCarthy. So, in other words, these eight may have done something extraordinarily helpful and historic. Well, that's going to do it for me. What will it be next time? We'll see. For now, go and be, please, the salt and light you were meant to be, and we'll see you next time on We The Free.